Shall we pray? Our Father, we open your word now, and it's two familiar words and texts. We have some of these verses memorized in our hearts. But we also know that every time we open your word, your spirit applies it in new ways, new insights, new applications, new convictions, new joy. And so we would ask that the Holy Spirit would make the word new to our hearts again this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Please open God's word with me to Luke 22. Page 881 in the Pew Bible, Luke 22. We'll read verse 1 and then go down to verse 7 through 20. Luke 22, verse 1. This is God's word. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. Verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, The cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Why would Christ intentionally plan his crucifixion to fall at Passover? Have you thought of that? There's no reason for Jesus to go to Jerusalem this time of the year, except that he was planning that his death fall on Passover. Luke has already recorded that he set his face to get to Jerusalem to do this. And the Gospel of Luke intentionally wants us to see that this was the reason that Jesus went to Jerusalem this week. He's connecting Passover with the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Five times in these 13 verses he says, it's Passover. You know the spiritual significance of this, Luke is saying. This is Christ's design. This is Christ's purpose why he went to Jerusalem to die this week. Now, in that culture, there was already a time, messianic hopes. Messiah would come at this time. The writer of Exodus, Rabbah, said, if anyone appears at a time other than Passover and claims to be Messiah, he is to be rejected. 
But even a far greater way, the scriptures show that Passover, the lamb shed to redeem his people from Egypt, is fulfilled in Christ's work upon the cross. And the scripture connects those two events. Christ is our Passover, sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Jesus would even refer to his work on the cross as his exodus, Luke 9, 31. And so in our text today, Luke is showing us that the Lord's Supper is a very intentionally instituted at the end of Passover. Jesus is using the Passover elements to transition even into the Lord's Supper. So here in Luke 22, we have the last Passover meal, and we also have the first Lord's Supper. Let's look at both of those. First, Luke gives us the celebration of the Last Supper, the Passover meal, And Luke gives us the date of the feast of Passover. He gives us the preparations for the feast, and he gives us the eating of the feast. Luke gives us the date of the feast of Passover, verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. So this is now Thursday, the 14th of Nisan, the day of Passover, which is the 14th. And that began a seven-day festival called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was celebrated from the 15th to the 21st of Nisan. But so closely were the Passover meal and the week following of unleavened bread that the term Passover is sometimes used to cover both, as Luke is doing here. It's now Thursday, the 14th of Nisan, and this is the day that the Passover lamb should be sacrificed. (laughs) Luke reminds us of that in verse 7. That is if you were following the traditional calendar. And here we've run up to a question. Luke and the other synoptic gospels all say that this last Passover meal was the Lord's Supper on Thursday. The Gospel of John records that Jesus was crucified on Friday, which was Passover. So how can you have three Gospels saying they all record Thursday was the Last Supper? But Matthew, Mark, and Luke say it was also Passover. John says, no, Passover came the next day on Friday. How do you resolve that? Leon Morris found it very, very helpful. He said by this time, there were two calendars. There were two ways to count the correct Passover. The Gospel of John is following the high priest's official calendar, which meant that Passover that year, according to the high priest, was on Friday. And that's why John is recording Passover happens on Friday, the exact time that the high priests were sacrificing the the sheep in the temple. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke, following the traditional calendar, which was the calendar of the Pharisees and the common people, felt very strongly that their calendar was correct, and so they were celebrating Passover on Thursday. And therefore, in Luke's account, we have no mention that they were eating a lamb, no mention of the bitter herbs, because the lambs had to be slaughtered at the temple, which the high priest would only allow on the day that they determined was the Passover. So it seems the official calendar, the one the high priest's, would have the lambs killed this year on Friday. And Luke's following the traditional calendar here. Passover, he records, is Thursday. That's the date on the calendar. 
But there's no mention that they were eating the lamb. Luke gives us the date. Luke gives us the preparations for the feast. Verses 7 through 13, Jesus instructs Peter and John, go into the city and prepare the feast. Well, it's Passover. There's tens of thousands of pilgrims that have come in. The crowds in the city, how are they going to find a room? Jesus said in verse 10, you'll find a man carrying a jar of water. Well, in that culture, men didn't usually carry water in jars. They would carry water in skins. We're not told who this man was, it was a servant, a friend. His only role was to indicate that's the house. And you will find a room furnished with carpets and couches and tables. And it's in that upper room that I will have, in the guest room, that I will celebrate the Passover with you. This word for guest room, by the way, is the same word that Luke used earlier in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, when Mary and Joseph arrive in Bethlehem. She's about to give birth, and there's no room for them in the guest room. Same, same word. Didn't go to a hotel. There, were, there was no room even in the guest room. But Jesus' instructions go and find this man in the crowd of thousands of people who's carrying water in a jar, and that's the room where we'll have Passover. So it raises the question, was this another example of what Jesus did on Palm Sunday? Remember, go find that donkey that's tied and showing that he is God and he knows the future and he knows even what people will say in the future. Or is it that Jesus has made all of these arrangements ahead of time, but he's kept the plans from his disciples because he will not have Judas thwart any of his plans. He won't have Judas take this time when he's alone in a room with his apostles. That would be a a perfect time to arrest him. But Jesus won't have Judas arrest him until it's Jesus' time to be arrested. So it could be showing, yes, Jesus has made all of these arrangements ahead of time, but it's on his schedule, not on Judas's. The preparations for the feast. Then the eating of the feast, Jesus announces, this is the last Old Testament Passover, verses 14 through 16. When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Earnestly desired. It's also been translated, Luke 12, 50, as overwhelmed. Jesus is talking out of the depths of his heart, true emotions. He's truly man with emotions like ours. And he's very, very moved. He said, to eat with you. His his friendship with these men, all their warts and foibles and sins and rebellions and stubbornness, and they're all about to deny him. He's enjoyed their company and their friendship over these years. I've earnestly desired to have this Passover with you. And then he says to them, this will be the last one, verse 16. What does he mean when he says, until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God? And he says it again in verse 18, I won't drink wine again until the kingdom of God. Jesus is not saying, I'll I'll never see you again. There's two ways to to understand this. The one is that this is a Hebrew um, idiom to say... 
I won't do this until does not mean that you're, you're going to do it again in the future. Between now and then, Jesus is not saying, uh, the next time I celebrate Passover, it's going to be in the kingdom of God. He's not saying that. He's, but it just means this is the last time. There is no more other time. Example, the Bible says that prophet Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. That doesn't mean that Samuel saw Saul on the day of his death. It just means from that time on, he never saw Samuel again. And that's what Jesus is saying. This is the end. This is the last Old Testament Passover of any significance. I'm the fulfillment after 1,500 years of this institution of delivering Israel from Egypt. It's come to an end because my death on the cross is going to be the Passover lamb. And from now on, going forward, you're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper. This is the end of all Passovers for any religious significance. Or it could be meaning... I'm not going to eat this again until everything that it symbolizes, its type is going to be fulfilled in the kingdom of God, the new heavens and the new earth. And so it's going to be the fulfillment of bondage from Egypt. And it's going to be the fulfillment of the cross and Christ crushing the head of Satan and delivering us into his kingdom. And it's going to be the final deliverance when Satan and sin are gone forever and death and the curse and we enter into the new heavens and the new earth. Everything that this symbolized and everything that I look forward to, Jesus could say, that's what I'm looking forward to. I like to think that it's both. (laughs) Often when the Gospels give you a choice of how do you translate this, I think it's intentional that you put them together. But either way, Jesus is saying there's a big change happening right here, fellas. This is the last Old Testament Passover. It's ceasing at this point for any significance because my death and resurrection are going to fulfill it. And, And it will be finally consummated when I return in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus announces the last Old Testament Passover. And then Jesus eats the last Old Testament Passover, verses 17 through 18. We read, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. We assume that this is the first cup of Passover meal. There were four cups of wine traditionally at the meal. And then we see that he's repeating, this is not, I won't be drinking wine again until the fulfillment. And then you notice in verse, he breaks the bread in verse 20, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant of my blood. Here's the institution of the cup of the Lord's Supper at the conclusion of the dinner. Just as circumcision is now changing into baptism, the blood is removed as the sign and seal of entrance into the visible church. Here now Passover is changing to the Lord's Supper because the blood is removed. After the death of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross, there is never again to be shedding of blood for any religious significance ever in the church of Jesus Christ. And here's the transition from circumcision to baptism and Passover to Lord's Supper. And you notice Luke intentionally says, and the Apostle Paul repeats it in 1 Corinthians 11, it was the cup after supper, after Passover, here's now the cup of the Lord's Supper. Luke is recording the celebration of the Last Supper, the Passover meal. 
Luke is also recording the celebration of the First Supper. This is now the First Supper, First Lord's Supper of the New Covenant. And Luke records the command of the supper. He records the elements of the supper. And he records the significance of the supper more than others do. He, first of all, gives us the command of the supper in end of verse 19. Do this in remembrance of me. It's a command. Jesus only instituted two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, not seven. These are the two signs and seals of the new covenant. And Christ's words here are the imperative, which is a command. You must do this. And it's in the present tense. You must keep on doing this. Do this in remembrance of me. It's a perpetual command of obedience. The person who professes Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior must partake of the Lord's Supper. Again, it's the tie and the reflection back to Old Testament Passover. It was the same. Anyone in the congregation of Israel who was circumcised and clean must partake of Passover. Exodus 12, 47, the whole community of Israel must celebrate it. Numbers 9, 13, but if a man who's ceremonially clean and not on a journey fails to celebrate the Passover, that person must be cut off from his people. That person will bear the consequence of his sin. If a person is perfectly able to celebrate Passover, a member in good standing of Israel, and does not, that person is cut off. It's that important. Jesus' command, partake of the supper. The implications of that, you can imagine, you can just begin to think of them all, that the Lord's Supper is not optional, whether that comes from the institutional church, church growth movement can't say, well, we're not going to be celebrating communion anymore because unbelievers are, are among us don't understand that and we're marketing to the world. Church can't set this aside. Individual believers cannot set this aside. It's Christ's command. You can't skip the Lord's Supper if it's not convenient. I've never noticed anyone leaving after the benediction and and not staying for the Lord's Supper. To do so would be wrong on so many levels. Well, I have plans for the afternoon. What could be more important than coming to the Lord's table? It's Christ's command, so you can't skip the supper based on how you feel today person can't say, well, I'm not going to take the Lord's Supper today because I don't have that warm assurance of faith. I don't have a close feeling of God's presence with me. I don't feel like I'm doing very well. Well, let me ask you, what other command of Scripture would you get a pass on for not obeying based on how you feel? Would you, could you say, I don't have to obey the fifth commandment today, honor my father and mother, because I don't feel like it. You don't get a pass. It's Christ's command. In fact, the times when you least feel that you're worthy to come to the Lord's table is when you need it the most. It's Christ's command, so you can't even skip it when you're guilty about your sin. It's good that the conscience is guilty. Yes, you know that you've sinned against God and a brother that doesn't excuse you from the Lord's Supper. What do I mean by that? It means confess your sins. Repent of your sins. Go to that brother and sister and confess it and Seek to begin the process of of reconciliation. 
That's why we always announce the Lord's Supper. We try to always announce the Lord's Supper the week ahead of time. Prepare yourselves. The requirement is not to be sinless. The requirement is not that reconciliation is perfect between you and everybody. That might take a long time. Isn't it beautiful how the Lord puts us in a corner? You must take the Lord's Supper. And you must take it having confessed of your sins. So the only conclusion is confess your sins. It's Christ's command, so it means that you can't skip the Lord's Supper if you've not professed your faith publicly. But you could. What do I mean by that? Well, yes, on the one hand, it's correct to say that you're not yet ready to partake of the Lord's Supper until a person has made a public profession of faith, until they've been received by elders the keys of the kingdom into the visible church of Christ. And so we read that one must be a member of a Bible-believing church. But if a person does believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and salvation is in him alone, received by faith alone, then that person needs to make steps to making that profession publicly to be part of the visible church of Christ so that they are able to obey Christ's command to take the Lord's Supper. There's no other option for a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, do this. So I means the application to children, personally trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know that you're a sinner and you know that your only hope is Christ who died for your sins. And you know that and you believe that and you love the Lord Jesus Christ. You speak to your parents and you say, Mom, Dad, I would like to go to the elders and make my profession of faith. There's no arbitrary age of 15 or 16. It's a command of Christ for his visible church. If that child is believing and resting in Christ alone and able to articulate their faith in Christ, they should not delay their profession of faith. Again, the question, what other commandment would you tell this child? You don't have to obey until you're 16. The Lord's Supper is Christ's command. So do we approach the Lord's Supper with that frame of mind? This is not just something we do every third Sunday of the month in the mornings. I'm doing this as a response of loving obedience to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Luke gives us the command of the supper. Luke also records the elements of the supper. First, the element of bread. You see it in verse 19. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. All the Gospels record that he broke the bread, and it's unanimous that all Protestant churches do this action in the Lord's Supper. In fact, the breaking of bread is a synonym for the Lord's Supper, Acts 20, verse 7. It pictures Christ's body being crushed under the wrath of God in our place for what our sins deserved. And then the bread is distributed. Both the bread and the cup must be distributed to those who've heard the word preached. The parallel account in Matthew 26, 27 says that when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. We have Protestant reformers, John Huss, one burned at the stake because he gave the Lord's Supper to the people. You treasure this. We are to receive both the bread and the cup 
And Matthew also has another parallel. Uh, Matthew 26, 26. Take and eat. This is not passive. You don't have a wafer placed on your tongue for fear of a, a crumb dropped to the ground. But it's the imagery of reaching and taking and eating. Because that's what you're doing spiritually with Christ. You're here saying, Lord, I need you. I'm resting in you. I'm reaching to you. And then we have the element of the wine, verse 20. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. You notice the transition after supper. Here's now the Lord's the cup of the Lord's Supper. Luke records it's for you. The other parallel accounts say it's for many. But you watch the elements of the supper. This is one of the reasons why we believe it's very important not to have children's church, but children present and watching the sacraments. They learn by watching, even the youngest child. The elements of the supper and then the significance of the supper. Luke records three ways that the Lord's Supper is very significant for us. It's very important because the Lord's Supper, first of all, is the presence of Christ. Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, verses 19 and 20. Not a real physical presence of Christ. All the reformers spoke against the superstitious quote, quote, real presence of Christ where the bread was transformed into the physical body of Christ. And they died as martyrs doing so. There's no scripture, and it's contrary to the doctrine of Christ. When Christ instituted the Lord's Supper here in Luke, he was standing before the disciples before his resurrection. This was not his spiritual glorified body. This was his ordinary, true human body. And he said, This is my body. This is my blood. And he was standing right in front of them. There was no way that they would ever understand that the bread had now been transformed into his body. Westminster Confession says the popish sacrifice of the mass is most abominably injurious to Christ's one only sacrifice, the alone propitiation for all the sins of the elect. Yes, it's not a real physical presence of Christ in the bread and the wine, but it is a real spiritual presence of Christ in the, in the table. God the Holy Spirit is communicating to us the spiritual presence of Christ by faith to all believers in the Lord's Supper, just as real as that bread awakens the sense of taste and smell and you see the red wine just as real as the bread and the cup is to your senses so just as real Christ is present in the supper with you and he's here as if he were in flesh and blood and he's here to strengthen you and to assure you and to to give you his his grace all the reformers taught the real spiritual presence of Christ in the Supper. Luther and Philip Melanchthon in Germany, Calvin, Martin Butcher, Peter Martyr, Thomas Cranmer, Nicholas Ridley, Hugh Latimer in England. Now, the Lord's Supper, you see, we're not only reflecting on the past death of Jesus Christ, his atonement, his payment for sin and his death, and we do remember that, and we do give thanks to that, and we do rest in the Lord Jesus by faith alone in his work upon the cross. But in the Lord's Supper, it's more than that. We're spiritually feeding with Christ. He is feeding us himself, not on the table, but at the table with us by the Holy Spirit.
And at the Lord's table, we're not just looking forward until the return of Jesus Christ, as if Christ were absent. But at the table, he is present with us, really and truly, to nourish and encourage and strengthen us. Davis writes, to participate in the body and blood of Christ involves the real-time, person-to-person, spirit-to-spirit contact with Christ. It is as different, so to speak, as merely thinking about a blood transfusion and actually receiving one, or perhaps more personally, merely thinking about kissing your wife and actually kissing and embracing her. Are we convinced at the Lord's table we are really in the presence of Christ by the Holy Spirit? Boy, that'll affect our hearts and how we prepare. It'll affect our sense of worship. It'll affect our sense of joy in the gospel. Luke records the significance of the Lord's Supper because he shows that it is the presence of Christ. And secondly, Luke records it's the remembrance of Christ. Verse 19 See, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's very important to remember that remembrance is a noun, not a verb. Jesus did not say, you take the Lord's Supper to remember me. He said, you take this in remembrance of me. The Supper itself is God's remembrance to us of our status. We're passive. We're being reminded by God. And the parallel is the Old Testament sacrificial system. It was God's remembrance to them that they are not yet perfect. They are not yet forgiven of those sins, even though they were pronounced forgiven because the payment had not been made. Hebrews 10, these Old Testament sacrifices, there is a remembrance of sin every year. The Old Testament sacrificial was God's remembrance that there is no perfection. There's no cleansing of sin once and for all because that's why these sacrifices have to be repeated year after year after year. The very repetition was an object lesson, was a remembrance, was a memorial service. that The once for all sacrifice had not yet come. The Old Testament sacrificial system was God's remembrance. It was his memorial to his people. Every time God is saying to them, you're still waiting for that full and that perfect and that sufficient sacrifice to be offered once and for all for the payments of sins. You're still waiting for the Messiah to come to reconcile me to you. And so when the scripture says that the Lord's Supper is a remembrance... God is declaring to you, the final one has come. This is God's historic memorial to you. Every time you celebrate the Lord's Supper, God is saying to you, believer, my son's sacrifice is full, it is perfect, it is sufficient, it's once for all, has been offered and accepted on your behalf, all is well. You are forgiven, you are restored, you are reconciled. To you with tender hearts and tender consciences, whenever you come to the Lord's table and you quickly start analyzing your sins, it's good to confess our sins. But you don't take the Lord's Supper in remembrance of sin. You take the Lord's Supper in remembrance of Christ. He has paid for your sin. God's promise is all is well.
because of what Christ has done. You also come to the Lord's table not quickly looking, how was my obedience this week? Can I come to the Lord's table this week because I think I've had a pretty good week? You're going back to the Old Testament. This is not based on your obedience. It's based on Christ's obedience. Your main focus is to be, you do this in remembrance of me. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name's written on his hands. The sacraments are chiefly God's ratification of his promise to you like the rainbow. It's the certification that his word is true. You take the Lord's Supper not to remember Christ. No, you take the Lord's Supper as remembrance. This is God's memorial to you of his oath. As you see the sacrament, as you celebrate the sacrament, you know that God's word is true. Horton writes, God's promise comes before my obedience. In fact, it's always God's pledge that creates my response of faith and love. Lord's Supper is important because it's the presence of Christ. It's the remembrance of Christ. It's, thirdly, the guarantee of Christ. Jesus says in verse 20 that the cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. It's only Luke that mentions this is the new covenant. And he says that it's in my blood. It means it's resting upon. It's caused by. This is the basis for the new covenant. My blood. He's not saying that the cup turns into blood. He's not saying the cup turns into Christ's blood. He's saying it's resting on. His blood is the guarantee of the new covenant. So Christ's blood is the surety, is the guarantee of the new covenant. It's not sealed with animal blood, like the Old Testament, thousands and thousands of sacrifices. But he shed his blood once for all, for all of the disobedience, for all of his people, forever. Jesus Christ goes to the cross And he's saying in so many words to his father, here I am, here's the bloody sacrifice, because my people have broken the covenant, and they're going to continue to do so. But I will take all the curse of the broken covenant, so that your love will be secure upon them forever. He also goes to the cross, saying, here's all the obedience that you, a holy, righteous God, would ever require, and I'm transferring it to their account. His obedience is credited to us by faith alone so that the new covenant is never in jeopardy. It's based upon Christ. He's the surety of the new covenant, not your track record. That's what Hebrews is trying to say over and over again. Hebrews 7, 2. This makes Jesus the guarantor, the the surety, the security of a better covenant. It's even called an eternal covenant. It's never going to be set aside. It's the new covenant that's been established in the blood of Jesus, Hebrews 10, 14. For by a single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. For by one offering, his blood of the covenant are has been paid for in full forever. Christ's blood is the surety of the new covenant. But then Jesus says something, you notice it's a 
Very significant. Christ's supper itself is the seal of the new covenant. What does Jesus say in verse 20? This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant. How can it be that the Lord's supper itself is the new covenant? Well, it becomes the seal of the new covenant, just as a child would say to God, as we often all do. Oh, I believe you. I believe your word. Your word tells us that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Wonderful promise. Your word tells us whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. God in heaven, those are such wonderful promises. But is it true? Do you promise? Do you swear? You can hear the young child saying that to his parent who've told them this wonderful good news. Really? You promise? God is saying in the Lord's Supper, the good news of my word is absolutely true. And in the Lord's Supper, I'm swearing to you that it's absolutely true. I'm swearing it's true. Here, I give you the cup. Yes, my word is absolutely true. And I give you the cup as an assurance, as a tangible, physical oath, guarantee that the gospel is absolutely true. This means every time you partake of the Lord's Supper, you are giving, being given an assurance that the forgiveness of your sins is absolutely true. Jesus is saying to you, believer, the new covenant surety is Christ, his blood, his obedience. That covenant cannot be broken. It's not based on your track record. So when you take the Lord's cup again, the Lord's supper again in faith, Christ's promise to you again is, I am your surety. I am your guarantee. I am your righteousness. Your relationship to God is based upon me and what I have done for you. I assure you, you are forgiven. Take the cup and I can affirm, I can swear to you that my blood cleanses you from all sin. Christ is promising you and the Lord's Supper believer that your relationship with God the Father is never in jeopardy. He's the surety. He's the guarantee of the new covenant. So we confess our sin. We confess our sin against such love, but it's never a question of harming the relationship. It's not like a mortgage payment. You miss one and some banks are ready to close. With Jesus Christ, all your mortgage payments have already all been made in full. And God will never renege on the new covenant because it's based upon Christ. Scripture tells us this wonderful promise, all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. The Lord's Supper, Jesus is saying to you, and I swear that it's true. It's really, really true. Have you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in him alone for the forgiveness of sins? Missionary Leslie Newbegin writes, when we share communion, even if the heart is cold and the mind wandering, we're given Christ himself to feed our souls. 
We can trust his pledge to us, even when we cannot trust our pledge to him. That night in the upper room, Jesus Christ was central, center of history. He was closing the Old Testament. He was closing the last Old Testament Passover meal, and he was instituting the first supper of the new covenant, the Lord's Supper. Shall we pray together? Almighty God and Heavenly Father, your glory is is that you have chosen the likes of us to be brought into your kingdom and to be given the new heart and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's not many wise, not many influential, not many powerful of this world, but it's the weak and the broken so that you might receive more glory. We are amazed. We have hearts that are full. Why? You should have brought the likes of us to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And why our Savior would stoop to give us the sacraments, to assure us of his promises to us, they really are true. Cause us, Father, to reflect and prepare for each Lord's table and to, to do so more meaningfully, more deeply, more richly, with more worship, with more joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.